Our text of study this morning will come from John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 47. If you have your copy of God's Word, or if you don't, there's some right in the back of the pew. Go ahead and turn there as we read God's Word this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't even have his word residing in you, in you because you don't believe the one, who, the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think in them, and you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I don't accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his name, you will accept him. But, can you, but how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek, glory, seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe me, believe what... What he wrote about, wrote, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, as you're finding your seat, I want to say happy Mother's Day. I didn't forget. Um, thank you for all the mothers in this room, the ones who are not in this room, who invested in the people who are in this room to make or at least contribute to the kind of people that the Lord has brought to our church what a beautiful thing that is. We're thankful for you mothers. We're thankful for your, your tireless commitments. Motherhood is a, is a, is a tough deal. It is um, in, in, in our world that has increasingly trying to redefine family and marriage, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, it's even more difficult for mothers to be mothers these days. And so we're thankful for your tireless commitments to your children, to your husbands, and certainly um, to grandchildren perhaps, whatever it may be, we're thankful for you. I know myself, I'm deeply thankful for my bride. She's beautiful. She's resourceful. She's extremely uh, smart. And she has that right mix of, of sassy and sweet, right? Um, but I'm thankful for her. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot this last week or so. Maybe you have noticed the same thing. That there's this kind of increasing assault in our Western world on the notion of objective truth. Probably none of us find that, you know, find that uh, surprising, right? That the world continues to assault anything that would have any sense of objective truth, natural law, whatever you want to call it. And you know, like I do as believers, that when you rid your foundation, rob your foundation for life from the objective standards of truth, all attempts at all kinds of things begin to um, begin to, to collapse. Attempts at moral discourse, establishing standards for how you really do treat other human beings, um, or attempting to establish 
even viable civil structures. I mean, just look what's going on in our world today. Everything seems to be challenged on every front. All the calls for social justice, I fear, I think it's, I'm, I think it's true, they are built on sand. They're built on sand. Because you can't have a passion for justice if you don't have a foundation of truth. That's where the whole thing gets turned around. So yes, Christians should be passionate about justice, of course, the way the Bible talks about justice. But we also know that there is no justice in the world short of God himself revealing himself to us. Revealing that he is the God who sustains everything we know. Because this, these attempts at justice in our world are built on sin, and, and, and frankly, they've, because they've, they've, they've kind of turned the locus of truth away from the objective standard of who God is, to what? The individual. You are your own truth. And that's a problem. And I think we all know, not to be an alarmist here, that with that mentality, that will lead to eventually destruction, which we know Jesus one day will come back and fix that and address that and heal that and restore that. And his people who have clung to faith in him will, will eventually triumph. I've been reading a book by Carl Truman that came out in the fall. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he says that underneath this suspicion of objective truth is this desire to redefine what goodness is, what righteousness is, to conform it to, like I said earlier, this increasing egalitarian. When I say egalitarian, this flattening of distinction. That's what egalitarian means. So there's no distinction between men and women. There's no distinction between heterosexual and homosexual. There's no distinction between this marriage or that marriage. There's no distinction between uh, laws and hierarchies of people who have genuine authority that God has designed in the world. They flatten everything down to the point that eventually you have nothing but a lawless society. He spends 400 pages, trace, pages tracing this ideological development of thinkers. And by the way, it didn't start yesterday. It didn't start three years ago. It, didn't start, it started, it's, it's, it's been in the making for almost 200 years as he, as he does this job of trying to tra help us see the thoughts of, of, of guys like Rousseau, who were these great philosophers and thinkers and, and poets like Whitworth and Shelley from the Enlightenment and Romanticism that slowly have shifted our pursuit of truth away from God and grounded in the individual. Again, the only result in that is that we find ourselves in a lawless society because there's no objective truth. And that's a problem. Now, again, I don't start there this morning to sound an alarm. I'm not alarmed by that. It's been going on since the garden. It comes in different epochs and different, you know, Increases and decreases. But the reason I pointed out to us this morning, and as we get into this text this morning about Jesus and how do we know he really is who he says he is, is that Christians must constantly work hard to retune our confidence in the witness of the historical faith once delivered to all the saints everywhere. So that we might better ground our hope and that we might fulfill the mission God has called us to. So in chapter 5, We've been dealing with this idea, this most important question, if you will, may not have been expressly stated yet, but let's state it what it is. How can we know God? And the reason that's the main objective of chapter five is because 
we as Christians understand that, begin, that, 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 that truth begins and ends with God himself. Otherwise, you have no truth. And so John takes the time, as we saw last week, and we'll see this week, to begin to just kind of do this, 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 this exercise in truth. This exercise in epistemology, which again is the study of truth. He, he does this exercise, and he does it on two fronts. Last week we saw it on the first front, which was, was how do we know God? How, 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 how does God reveal himself? And Jordan did a great job of exploring for us the verses 16 through 20 that, 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 um, that Jesus is the full revelation of God. That's how God reveals himself, through Jesus. The nature of the father-son relationship demonstrates Jesus' equality with God, even though that notion would have been highly offensive to the Jews of his day. And that Jesus alone wields, as we saw, as, as we kind of concluded last week, he wields the, the rightful, righteous judgment over the world and demonstrates that he's the center of all authority. So that was the first part of this, how do we know, we, how can we know God? But today we're going to kind of center on the second question. Well, how do we know then, how can we verify that Jesus is actually that guy? That he is the one sent from God. And what's really wonderful here is that Jesus plays by their rules. He plays by the rules of the Jewish legal system, which required two to three witnesses to display, to defend his testimony. And that these three witnesses are witnesses sent from God. You'll see them, the Father being connected to each one of the three witnesses that we're going to discuss this morning. That this threefold witness of the Father demonstrates the full revelation of God and therefore the fullness of all that is true and good. And so then if I put the sermon in a sentence, the people of God gain confidence in Jesus as they trust and participate in the Father's threefold witness of Jesus. That we trust in and we have participate in the threefold witness of Jesus, which we'll talk about as we unpack our text this morning. So we have three witnesses in this text this morning. You can, I'll go ahead and give them to you now if you want to track along. There's going to be the testimony of John the Baptist. There's going to be the testimony of Jesus' works. And there's going to be the testimony of the scriptures. The testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of Jesus' works, and the testimony of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament scriptures. So let's just kind of talk about that first testimony of John the Baptist, this witness, right, to take the stand, this first witness to take the stand for the Father. And he takes the stand, why? Because he was sent from the Father. We saw this in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So notice that. He was a man, what? Sent from God, whose name was John. His name, I'm sorry, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. That's who we know. We've done a lot of work on John the Baptist in our study in John so far, but we need to return to him because he still plays a, a huge figure in John's gospel. Jesus himself says that, and he says it here in, uh, um, in, uh, in verse 35, I think. Yeah, John was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice in him for a while in his light. When he says that he's a lamp, he's not saying John's the light. We all should know this, right? A lamp is not light. Lamp is an instrument to light. The lamp has no ability to do anything unless the, you light whatever's inside of it, and then it spreads its light throughout the room or throughout the area. And so John was this lamp that, of which, from which the light of Christ emanated from him, and it means that his testimony was trustworthy. 
that, we, that, that he's, he is someone sent from God to point to Jesus, to prepare people for Christ. Now again, when we think about lamps, we also know that lamps have a limited nature, right? Like, like you put a lamp, you, there's a light in here perhaps, like depending on what kind of bulbs you put in the lamp, that's, it's going to have limited capacity for brightness, right? It's gonna, it's just, it's not gonna, it can only light this room well, and even that, not really that great sometimes. But that's lamps, human lamps, for instance, as we're talking here, have limited lumens, but they're still effective because it's what it says here in this text. You were willing to rejoice in a while, for a while in his light. In other words, even the Jewish leaders were flocking to John when he came on the scene. And they, were, um, they wanted to, to, to know this John. We wanted to know what his message was. They, they loved his message. They were excited about it. Perhaps, as we all wondered, this is, this is the time. This is the time the Messiah is going to show up. He's going he's to finally arrive and he's going to set all things in order. But again, human testimony, human lamps are so limited. Because eventually, as we all know, we grow weary of human testimony. Right? We want the next flavor of the month. And that's what they did with John. John's ministry had diminished because of Jesus' increasing ministry, and so therefore John was not the new hit guy on the scene. But regardless, the reason that John is listed as a witness is because he was a God-sent witness. His ministry was never about him, but that, that person who would come after him, that Jesus, the one with whom John didn't feel worthy to tie his own sandals. Of course, the point's true. The point is simple for us. Let's pay attention to what's happening here with John. But one of the ways that we know God has been revealing his redemptive plan is through men driven by the Spirit like John. That's what God's been doing since the garden. Through prophets. The Jewish leaders should have recognized who Jesus was because God didn't start with John. He's been doing this all along through the Old Testament, which again, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But they should have recognized him, and therefore, because John's testimony, they should have said, wait a minute, let's take notice of this Jesus and not be intimidated by him or not being threatened by him. Because God has been, has a well-established process of using prophets throughout the Old Testament to prepare for Jesus' coming. And John is just one of those people. God has been revealing himself to these men since the garden, and we see this through the collective corpus of Scripture. Again, we'll look at our third point. Let's just talk about the application here for a moment. Let's talk about what you and I can glean from this and why, what, how does this transfer into our experience today or even our jobs and our calls as a, as a, as a church today. Well, first of all, it should remind us that there's a, a preeminent importance of faithful, spirit-driven, Jesus-saturated, Jesus-exalting biblical preaching within the life of the church. Like, guys, look, there's a lot of ways people try to temper the church and fiddle with the church, and they want to make it all modern and hip and whatever else. But any church that has gotten away from the plain declaration of the gospel ceases eventually to become a church, to be a church. Like preaching has always been a part of the church. Romans 10 says, how will they know unless someone preaches to them? And how will they know? And it lets the feet of the good news, take the good news to Jesus, of Jesus to these people. That's Romans 10. Preaching is just central to what the church is. And listen, just a little warning here. And when we're talking about Jesus, we're not talking about professionalized preaching. We're not talking about the, there's, there's these hired hands 
who do the work that I'm doing here this morning, that the kind of preaching that is just at the very nature of what the church is. And so we need to be aware that we don't make preaching a very personality-driven thing. That it's not just about the guy who's sitting up in the pulpit, but that it's actually about the church who's declaring their witness to the world. Because inferred in this is the church's corporate call to a declarative witness. Does that make sense? That we, not just the guy here, not just me or any of the other elders or pastors who preach, we are all called to this witness, not just the hired hand, right? That God has sent his church full of men, full of women into the world to share the gospel and preach the gospel to the world to declare the good news of Jesus. Though we are not prophets in the same sense, so we don't believe that there's an office of the prophet anymore in the, in the church, in the Protestantism, but, but we do recognize that there's a somewhat of a, of a prophetic function that the church as a whole does, declares the gospel, and preaches the gospel wherever it goes. It declares the gospel any opportunity we get. We speak the truth into a world that is increasingly truthless. This is what it means to God's people. This is what it means for us to be a people like John who just are faithful to being sent just like John, just like all the prophets. But God doesn't send prophets. He sent his son. And through his son, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be the church. That is a prophetic function. To go and preach the gospel, to make disciples wherever we go. So that first testimony of John the Baptist is incredibly important for us because it, it, it touches us right where we are. The second testimony is to Jesus' works. Let's just read verses 36 through 38. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you have not, haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe in the one he sent. So Jesus says, okay, John has that limited scope, right? Human testimony. Let's amplify it up a little bit. Now let's talk about the, like, the next tier of testimony, Jesus' works. What does Jesus' works that were enabled by the Father, as it says clearly here, to do, given by the Father to do, how does that help us to speak into a, an increasingly truthless world? Well, mainly because Jesus is not sent uh, mainly to be a gifted man with spiritual powers or a notable prophet, but is actually God. He is God in flesh, the fully God, fully God, fully man. But any confession, friends, that we would hold up in the church that understands Jesus as something other than his Trinitarian identity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will ultimately end with the church failing to be the church. And so what God gives John, I mean, he gives Jesus to do, is to declare that he is actually part of the Godhead. That these works are there to testify who Jesus is. These works are not there just simply to, um, just to do good things, just to be acts of compassion, which they are, but they're actually works to point that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Word that was spoken in creation, that created all things by the Word of God. This is who Jesus is, and He's now in the flesh. He's come in the flesh. He returned after His resurrection in the flesh, and He stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Friends, 
And then Jesus points the finger right at these religious leaders. And he, he just gets right in their grill. And he says, look, the reason you don't understand my works is because you don't know the Father. Look what he does. Verse uh, 37, the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You have not seen his form. You don't even have his word in your, in, residing in you. These three things Jesus is confronting. Jesus didn't mind confronting them. He showed them the error of their ways. He showed them their foolishness. Never heard his voice, he says. This is probably likely a reference to God the Father's words to Jesus when he was baptized and arose from the death and the spirit, uh, from, the, um, from the water and the spirit descends like a dove and God said, Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He said, you didn't hear that because you don't know my father. He says, you don't, you haven't seen his form. Like, like Jacob before he became Israel and God visited him through this messianic visit since the Jews didn't realize Jesus as the full manifestation of God, therefore they did not see God, as G- God in Jesus, and therefore they are not true Israel. Jesus is actually saying some pretty pointed things here. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Because if you were this, you would know who I am. And then he goes into the last one, kind of, it kind of increases this last point. You don't even have his word residing in you. Like Joshua, who was a man... Who, is, who put the word of God, whatever, the law of God in his heart. Or like the psalmist in Psalm 119, who hid the word of God in his heart, meditated on it, learning not to sin against God and to, to follow and trust in his ways. They understood the indwelling of God's word was vital to knowing God. And Jesus says, you have none of that. You have none of that. All of these were antecedent revelations, all these things that we're pointing to here that Jesus says, you, didn't, you, don't, have my, you don't have my word, you don't have, you don't have, you've never seen his form, you've never heard his voice. It's because ultimately you never got what the Bible was all about, what the Old Testament was all about. And so when you come to, when the, so when, in terms of understanding this indwelling power of God's word in, in our lives, we need to be like the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 2. At many times and in many ways, God has spoken to the fathers and patriarchs, leaders, kings, prophets, anticipating the revelation of the Son of God. So all of Jesus' works, from the water being turned to wine, the healing of the official son, the healing of the disabled man, the feeding, as we'll see next week, the 5,000 in a couple weeks, the walking on water in a couple weeks, the healing of the blind man, they all pointed to something bigger than Jesus just doing something like kind of nice for people. There's much more in Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 than just saying, hey, you, you need a meal. He's showing them he's the bread of life. He is the meal. That he himself is the covenant keeper of redemption. And that all true believers, listen, let's put it point plainly here, that all true believers are those who see Jesus as one, the true and better Adam, who came not as a lawbreaker, but as a law keeper, like Adam was a lawbreaker, but Jesus is the law keeper. Two, he was a true and better son, like Isaac, who was offered to God as the once and for all sacrifice for sins. That Jesus is the true and final atoning lamb of God, as we see in the, all of the mosaic practices. And, 
that he's a true and better long-awaited king and son of David? We can go on and on and on. You can't read the Old Testament and not see Jesus. You just can't. And they missed him. And Jesus is putting them on notice. He's putting them on blast. The value of Jesus' works are what he and what they reveal. So for us, again, what does this mean for us here today? Why, was this, why is this important for us? Well, one, that Jesus' works are still in play for the people of God today. That Jesus hasn't stopped working. Namely, he works through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in his people who was sent, as we saw in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 and 37, that God would send his spirit to fill his people and he would be the helper sent from Jesus, the spirit of Christ, dwelling in God's people. His works are still very much at play. The people of God are a spirit-filled people. That's who we are. And so his works didn't cease when he ascended into heaven. His works continue even to this day through the local church and through the church corporate, and through the church universal. This means that the value of Jesus' work is found in the perseverance of the saints. We sing these songs this morning, and, and, and we, we're suffering, and it talks about the fact that we, we suffer, but we keep pressing forward in our failings, but Jesus is sure to get us all the way home. That's why we sing these songs. They're an anthem, friends. They are a they're a, they're, a, they're a journey for God's people to remind us that in suffering and persecution, they're no match for the work of God through the Spirit to keep God's people and to fulfill what God has promised. That just like Jesus' work pointed to God's fulfillment of sending His Son as the new covenant, the Spirit is sent to bring us all the way home when Jesus returns. You can't divorce the Spirit from Jesus. You can't divorce Jesus from the Spirit. You can't divorce Jesus from the Father. It just doesn't work. We have nothing to fear from the corrupting works of the world and its godless ways, as we mentioned earlier in our introduction. But, we, but, but as we just stick to the script, friends, not trying to add all these fun and new you know, things to the church, but we, 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 nothing, we fear nothing because at the end of the day, the script is simple. Preach the Word. The script is simple. Live in the Spirit. The script is simple. Watch God work. Watch God do what He does through His people. And it may be hard. It may be difficult. But we'll get all the way home. The last testimony, it's almost like we are increasing, as I said earlier. We, it's all kind of setting the play, stage for the, what we might call the star witness. The scriptures. I'll just read a couple passages here, a couple verses. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe in the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. You are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. And then he comes on down later on. But do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't Believe what he wrote. How will you believe my words? So you see how the trajectory goes. We are people of the word. That there's been this, these two previous witnesses are escalating to this star witness of scripture. That the origin of the scriptures are found in the gracious dealings of God himself to us. That God would actually be kind enough to condescend to us and reveal himself through his word, through men inspired. And we get a trustworthy Bible for us to study and know the God of the universe. 
when the world is just spinning off its axis in chaos. The Jewish leaders no doubt believed in the authority of God's word, but they got the purpose of God's word all wrong, is what Jesus is saying. Missing the central subject of the Old Testament. They didn't see Jesus, namely that God's gracious acts of saving sinners, that kind of goes like this, that God created everything that we know, that he's the, a, a just and sovereign creator, is glorious, and he created everything we know, and he alone is the sovereign ruler over all things. This is what the Old Testament reveals. This is what the whole Bible reveals. And not only that, but that mankind who has been made in the image of God has rejected God and turned from him in rebellion and sin. And that God acts in love to redeem sinners from their desperate situation as a, as, as a display of his sovereign joy and his sovereign glory. And then last, that God will establish one day, perhaps soon, a new heavens and new earth on the basis of the redeeming works of the Son and the people of God. This is what the scriptures point to. How do they miss it? Well, how do we miss it? We no doubt meet people. We've grown up, some of us have grown up in situations where we just miss the entire Bible altogether. We just reduce the Bible to a bunch of rules and regulations and, 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 and everything, but we miss the central nature of the Bible. And we do it too. They, the religious leaders, made the Bible a means of acceptance to God. That's what Jesus says here. You think in them you may have eternal life. That you just keep them perfectly. That you keep them and you hit every jot and tittle of the Bible. But that's not what it's all about. That you can keep the law and all the supplementary teachings that have flowed out through the teachers of Israel and the rabbis of Israel, but they missed that Jesus was the end goal. That Jesus was the end of the law. That all the law points to Jesus. And that Jesus is the one who keeps the law on our behalf and enables us to love God's law just like the psalmist does. This is what the Bible's all about. Jesus calls them out, out for seeking glory from one another rather than pursuing the glory of God. He says, the reason why you don't see it is because you've got yourself so wrapped up in your own life. You're trying so hard and, and, and to, to, to work and whittle your life around to make your life feel complete and to earn acceptance with God and, and to earn acceptance more, namely from other people to find glory in them. And Jesus says, you're going to fall short. Those are all going to come up wanting See, Jesus came to please God, which, what, which is what Adam was created to do, but failed to do. And every one of his prodigy, including the people in this room, have failed to do. We can't. We depend on Christ to be the law keeper, where we don't keep the law. But when he does, we love the law all the more. We love God's word all the more. This is what it's all about. So how do the scriptures testify to Jesus? Well, that's when he gets down here into the, into the, he talks about Moses being their main accuser. He accuses them of being missing the point because they refused to read the Bible for what it really is. They, they had venerated Moses and they made Moses a savior. They made Moses a, a redeemer and a mediator. And, and all the while Moses is saying, I am not he. There is one better coming greater coming. They refused to read the Bible for themselves. They, they, they all claimed to follow Moses and, 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 and see him as their mediator, but Moses pointed to Jesus as the true and final mediator. 
A good example of this is Jesus' transfiguration where uh, Peter and John are there and they're witnessing this wonderful, glorious moment when Elijah is standing on one side and Moses is standing on the other side, Jesus and, and everything. And, and, what, and then you see, you know, the ignorance of disciples like we do sometimes. And they come up to him, hey, 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 Jesus, hey, Rabbi, man, this is a wonderful thing for us to see. Shall we put memorials up for all three of these people, for all three of you? And at that moment, the Father speaks again. Stop. This is my son. Moses pales in comparison to him. Elijah pales in comparison to him. They are there to give witness to the Son of God. That Jesus is superior and Jesus is the supreme Savior and sovereign King over all that we know and love. And so for us this morning, it seems clear that if we're going to be faithful to our mission here at Grace Church and continue to see more people come to Christ and grow this fellowship of believers. We need to recognize that if there's anything in us that may say we love the Bible, but we're missing the point. I had a Sunday school teacher a few years ago who was a wonderful man, loved him to death, but uh, he came in the office to talk about Sunday school curriculum for the, for the, for the children. And uh, we said, okay, great. We gave him some great Jesus-centered, gospel-centered curriculum. And he was like, I, I think we need something more. I'm like, okay, well, what is it that we need? Well, we need to teach these kids etiquette. We need to teach them how to use forks. We need to teach these kids how to, to, to respect them, their parents. We're like, oh, okay. Where do you find that in Scripture? Is that the message of the Bible? Or are we Judaizing the Christian experience ourselves? Right? Friends, we do the same thing. So we've got to make sure that these things are not happening in our lives. Look, being a Bible thumper is not the goal. Oh, we thump the Bible here, but that's not the goal. The Bible is about nothing else than magnifying Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, if you can preach a message without Christ, you have not preached the Bible. That's my paraphrase of that. There's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if it fails to see the main point, which is Jesus. Jesus is the main point. It's why we select so clear material in our church, and we want to be more and more of that. The proper interpretation of the Bible is so vitally important to the church. Like, you and I have got to learn to handle God's word well. Not just me, but we need to give ourselves to the study of God's word and, and, to, and to know how to handle it well. Because what happens is, is a lot of times our, our engagement with the Bible is reduced to that daily truth nugget or that daily sip of wisdom, pun intended, right? Like it's just, that's what you got like on your little coffee cup. Like you don't need a sip of wisdom. You don't need your daily truth nugget. You need Christ. I need Christ. And any time in scripture that I don't feel drawn to Jesus... I haven't gotten what I need out of the cry out of scriptures, and neither have you. Every believer needs to be equipped with the proper tools to read and study the Bible clearly and truthfully. We cannot preach or teach the scriptures faithfully without it pointing to Christ. So as we land the plane, what will be our testimony as God's people? What is our testimony as God's people? How would we be known to other people that Christ is the center of our life? 
Do they find us venturing off into all other topics, which can be wonderful, but do they ultimately see us that our ultimate, not just loyalty, but our ultimate hope is in Christ? Is it Christ? Will we be like John, living lives of faithful witness that don't point to us, but to Jesus? Will our testimony to the world point to the comfort and assurance that we found in the works of Christ and his people to protect and preserve us? That he is taking us all the way home, as we've mentioned earlier? Will our testimony to the world point, us to the, that, point them to our reliance and confidence in God's word in the face of so many worldly ideologies that are creeping into the world and creeping into the church, for that matter? To seek, that, that seek to have us find our hope and safety in other things like governments and social status. These creeping and shifting ideologies of our day are nothing new. No alarmism here. We have something better. We have something infinitely better. So as we come to the table this morning, we come as a peculiar people known for one thing and one thing alone, the glory of Christ. And you come to this table, hopefully with a desire to bring your sin before the Lord because you have been given that opportunity because Christ affords you that opportunity. And you come reminding yourself that you've been included in this wonderful family with this wonderful witness and this wonderful mission to declare truth and the gospel to everywhere we go. Is that what we'll be known for? Is that what we'll be known for? Let's pray.